Magnesium is integral for 600-plus biochemical processes in the human body, and yet most people are deficient. Common signs of magnesium deficiency include fatigue, muscle weakness, stunted growth, poor immune function, poor concentration in memory, hormonal imbalances, bone and teeth problems. Most people think grabbing a bottle of whatever cheap stuff on the shelf or at the top of Amazon will solve this. The common misconception is that consuming more magnesium will automatically improve health and well-being. The truth is there are various forms of magnesium, each of which is essential for a variety of physiological processes. Most people are deficient in all forms of magnesium, while even those considered healthy typically only ingest one or two kinds. Consuming all seven of magnesium's primary forms is the key to accessing all of its health benefits. That's why we pack seven forms of 450 milligrams of elemental magnesium into each serving of Wild Mag Complex. One dose a day is all you need. Learn more and grab a bottle today at wildfoods.co. Use code GENIUS for 10% off your order. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have Dr. Kara Grieger. Uh, She's currently an assistant professor and an extension specialist in environmental health and risk assessment. Uh, We're going to talk about her work with uh, various stakeholders that uh, have to deal with nanomaterials that are used in food and agricultural sectors and how they affect the environment. So, uh, Kara, thank you for coming. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Oh, and I didn't mention you're at uh, North Carolina State University. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. NC State. Okay. Well, if you would tell me a bit about your background and then uh, your current research. Sure, I'd be happy to. Thanks. So for my background, I actually have a PhD in environmental engineering where I focused on understanding risks of engineered nanomaterials and ways that we can understand these risks that often have uncertainty associated with them. I, at that time, I was at the Technical University of Denmark outside of Copenhagen, where I lived and worked for about a decade, trying to understand um, risk assessments of emerging technologies. And then I moved to the U.S. Um, after my Ph.D. and postdoc work. Um, so I've taken some of my background in risk assessment of engineered nanomaterials and nanotechnology and then have applied those tools and thinking to investigating some potential risks and decision-making of nanomaterials in food and agri-system, um, which that's one of the the projects I'm working on now. All right, so what kind of nanomaterials are people having issues with and which ones are you studying? Oh, thanks for asking. Um, so let me just back up. So there's a range of different nanomaterials that are being developed um, and used in different food and agricultural products. So these would range from different nanomaterials used in agriculture, like nanopesticides, nanofertilizer, to different types of nanomaterials in food, um, including food additives and different nutritional supplements. Um, and also nanomaterials are being used in veterinary medicine 
uh, application as well. And I must say that I think there um, a lot of these emerging research areas are also trying to be more sustainable with um, the use of nanotechnology in food and agriculture. So there's a big emphasis of trying to use and harness some of the unique properties of nanomaterials and nanotechnologies for more sustainable food and ag systems. At the same time, there are some stakeholders that are um, not sure how they feel about using in food and agriculture. And so there are different stakeholders. They have different views of use of nanomaterials and food and ag products. And what we've seen in some of our research is that different uh, or, or some stakeholders are more comfortable with the use of nanomaterials for agricultural applications, particularly those that respond to a societal benefit. And at the same time, stakeholders are a little bit less comfortable or less sure about using nanomaterials directly in food that would be directly ingested. What is a nanomaterial, though? Is it nano-sized beads of material that uh, are used, or does it start out, you know, as a nanomaterial and then it becomes larger clumps? Like, what, what does that mean that something's a nanomaterial? That's a great question. Um, so, actually, we use nanomaterials in a number of different uh, ways in societies. Actually, nanomaterials can be natural, but what I'm talking about is really engineered nanomaterials. So these would be materials that are purposely engineered and developed on the nanoscale that is 10 to the minus ninth uh, meters at a very, very small, we're talking like atomic uh, scale. And a actually at this scale, materials can end up having some slightly different, or they do have different properties so they can behave in a different way than at the, the bulk scale. And that's why we're uh, scientists and researchers have been interested in using and harnessing some of their unique properties in different applications. Oh, so what's an example of a, a common nanomaterial where there's a lot of debate about its use, but it's also oh. important at the same time? That's a great, that, that's a great question. You know, what are, what are those examples where there might be potential um, benefits, but also potential risks or um, concerns. One that comes to my mind, and there are a number of different examples here, but one that comes to my mind is the use of titanium dioxide or neon dioxide as a food additive. So I'll back up and say that titanium dioxide or E171 is an already an approved food additive. Um, we've been using it for decades. It's often to make foods different or to make foods brighter or whiter. You can look on the back of you know, a pack of candies, gum, you can easily find dioxide in the list of ingredients as E171. Now, there is some work, there's some work on the use of engineered nanomaterials that would be at the nanoscale and whether nanoscale titanium dioxide would be considered to be different as a non-nanoscale. And to make a long story short, the European Food Safety Authority has recently decided to discontinue the use of titanium dioxide in all foods because largely of toxicology studies using engineered nanomaterials. So um, in terms of the benefits, I mean, who benefits from using titanium dioxide in foods? For the yeah, most that part, I, I see everywhere. Not to think about it. I've seen there are many, many labels. Yeah, that's correct. And we actually have a number of different food additives. If you start looking on the packages of different food and beverages, you know, there are a lot of different food additives that we do use um, regularly in society, and E171 is is one of them. Um, Europe has decided to take a little slightly different approach 
and decided to discontinue its use as an approved food additive, um, as I said, largely because of some toxicology studies involving nanoscale titanium dioxide. And so who benefits, you know, from using TiO2? Well, in my opinion or in my mind, I think that maybe perhaps uh, food companies or companies and you could maybe claim consumers if they would have a brighter uh, colored food product or brighter colored candy, maybe it looks more attractive. Good question here. Besides making um, things, let's say, whiter or different colors, what are other uses of titanium dioxide? Because I've, I've seen it, I believe, in sunscreen yeah. and food and, and other products. So it's, it's probably has a lot of uses. Yeah, it does have a lot of uses. You know, um, just off my top of my head, I, you mentioned some of them um, in sunscreen and different uh, personal care products. I think a toothpaste. It's also used in other um, things like that. So it is widely used in society. And so I think the question is, you know, do the benefits outweigh the risk? And they often will depend on the actual product. Um, and really, are those benefits, you know, worth worth the the potential risks? Um, and so that that those are decision making questions that often left to uh, regulatory agencies. Magnesium is integral for 600 plus biochemical processes in the human body, and yet most people are deficient. Common signs of magnesium deficiency include fatigue, muscle weakness, stunted growth, poor immune function, poor concentration and memory, hormonal imbalances, bone and teeth problems. Most people think grabbing a bottle of whatever cheap stuff on the shelf or at the top of Amazon will solve this. The common misconception is that consuming more magnesium will automatically improve health and well-being. The truth is there are various forms of magnesium, each of which is essential for a variety of physiological processes. Most people are deficient in all forms of magnesium, while even those considered healthy typically only ingest one or two kinds. Consuming all seven of magnesium's primary forms is the key to accessing all of its health benefits. That's why we pack seven forms of 450 milligrams of elemental magnesium into each serving of Wild Mag Complex. One dose a day is all you need. Learn more and grab a bottle today at wildfoods.co. Use code GENIUS for 10% off your order. Well, you mentioned stakeholders a bunch of times. So is there a hierarchy of claims or rights of stakeholders in the given situation? And is that taken into account when you evaluate, okay, well, this will help the manufacturer in this way, you know, the product will last a week longer, but toxicologically it does this and that to people. So it's probably not worth it, for example. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, to my knowledge, EA definitely uh, considers different stakeholder views of their approved uses. And so different uh, benefits, you know, are, are there economic benefits? If so, what are they? Who else benefits? Who's at risk? All of this gets fed into an ultimate decision that's made by these regulatory agents. Yeah. And I mean, you know, I've, again, I've used many of these products. I was never told one, one word about them. You know, the titanium dioxide or other additives show up in the label, but I don't know what they do unless I research them. And I don't even know they're there unless I look at it. So Correct. How am I, uh, for instance, as a consumer of a product, how am I a stakeholder if I don't know anything? Oh, that's a really good and deep question. And that, that relates to a lot of things that go beyond just nanomaterials. You know, the role of um, product labeling. So you do have the list of ingredients on food and consumers can try to to read those labels and to educate themselves on what those labels 
at the same time, we know that scientists and regulatory authorities are also working hard to make sure those labels are clear and transparent and understandable. I know that FDA, for example, they have done quite a lot of work in trying to improve some of their truth labeling to make sure that consumers have transparent and informative information so they can make the best decisions uh, that they can. So food labeling is definitely a way that we can try to get consumers to understand more of their their purchasing, what they are purchasing. But I agree with you that it indeed it, it, there's a lot there that would go on to under to informing the consumer about all the details of what are different food additives, what are their safety. Um, yeah, I think a consumer might need to uh, dig a little bit deeper to try to understand some of the information. And some of this information might be available through uh, websites or other materials produced by regulatory authorities. So for example, the CSPI, Center for Science in the Public Interest, they do quite a lot of interesting work to try to make sure that consumers have sufficient information to make decisions about the, the food they're consuming. Hmm, okay. I was thinking about the food labels that you talked about. Why can't uh, every requirement, let's say, to have a QR code or a URL on given products. So not only that, you know, they would go to a video and say, here's all the ingredients listed in order of, you know, concentration and here's what they do and here's why we included them. You know, what if there was a required statement that needed to be made by various products that way? That's a great idea. I think some um, different groups have suggested similar strategies that maybe a QR code could be applied to different products where consumer could scan the QR code to get some more information. I'm not a total expert in this, but I, I think that what I've understood is that that may put some uh, additional burden on companies to to add in a different uh, QR code to the label. And then how, how does one or who is responsible for maintaining the information um, that would be linked to that QR code? Is that additional burden for companies or whose responsibility? So th this question here really gets at the heart of a lot of uh, my research that focuses on how can we manage these emerging technology society and it comes to who is responsible. And often it's a multi-stakeholder approach that are like a, several stakeholders are responsible, right? Um, you have responsibility of industry, you have responsibility of regulatory authorities. You could also argue that consumers may have some responsibility in themselves with their purchasing power. So there's a lot of different groups um, that would be important when we when we think about who is responsible for emerging for managing some of the emerging um, technologies and risks in our. Yeah, I just don't see it being very much of a burden. You know, if I'm going to make a new, I don't know, suntan lotion. I have to go through some regulation to get it put onto the market. Now, obviously, it can't hurt people and needs to be tested. So why is it so much harder for me to put a QR code in a video that someone in my organization keeps up? You know, I'm, I'm making a lot of money on the product, hopefully. I have good margins. So I don't know. It just seems like uh, if industry gives that excuse, it's like, come on. You guys made it. You know what's in it. You deliberately chose the ingredients to be in it for reasons. But you can't say all that in the video. Like, please. So I don't know, I just think uh, if there was a law that required something like that, something really simple, it shouldn't be too much of a hardship on the companies. Right. Well, that's, and that's interesting. You brought up a, a good point, a company or an industry's ability to be transparent and forthcoming with uh, some of the information in their products and what we have seen in some other spaces. Well, actually in the nano space, as well as in the genetic engineering space, I have seen some companies be more forthright about, you know, their, their use, they specifically state that they are using nanoscale materials in some cases, and they try to, you know, discuss 
how nanomaterials are used, um, how it brings benefit to the product, and the same for the genetic engineering space. So there are definitely some companies that we that we've seen that are purposely trying to describe to consumers how they're using new genetic engineering techniques to improve the product. So I think that in some cases we have seen that, and I think those industries are trying to build trust with consumers that they're they're not trying to hide anything. They want to be forthright about what they are using and maybe how it benefits the consumer. And I may have mentioned earlier that some of my research has shown that consumers are more excited about the use of nanomaterials and and those that would solve a societal problem than other applications that may be just more frivolous or like for a look or taste or something like that. And so this points out to some other research that shows that when there are, you know, a distribution of benefits and risks with emerging technologies in food and ag, that consumers want products that that um, generally have a higher benefit to risk ratio and that there's really a need for it in society that solves a bigger challenge and it responds to a larger societal need, such as being more sustainable, having a positive impact on the environment or human health, you know, again, where there's a, there's a clear benefit uh, to. Well, um, a lot of products, I mean, I don't know, like if there's a new potato chip that tastes like, uh, I don't know, broccoli, what, what's the societal benefit to that? Like we don't need that necessarily, but if there's another product that's important for health, then it's a, it's a dramatically different application and need. So how is that being established when products are being made? Well, if you have a number of companies that are trying to um, innovate, ways that are either more sustainable for the environment or provide additional health benefits. So actually, outside of nanomaterials, you probably have seen that the development and innovation of cell cultured meat is is really on the rise. And that has a number of, of positive environmental implications, including a positive impact of, on climate change, meaning that cell cultured meat would have a lower environmental impact when we when we talk about the climate compared to animal raised meat and at the same time there are also benefits for animal well-being and welfare that we wouldn't necessarily have to grow a whole animal and then kill it to you know get the meat that this would be another more animal welfare friendly type application so we we are seeing the growth of these more sustainable oriented food and ag um, innovations. There are also the rise of new genetic and food and agriculture where perhaps folks can develop more nutritious fruits and vegetables or uh, develop, and also in the case of nanomaterials, there's the use of potentially nanocellulose as a food coating on produce that could extend the shelf life and decrease food waste. So those are definitely having our the idea is that they would have a more um, significant impact in terms of being more environmentally sustainable. Yeah. Also, what came to mind is the packaging for various, let's say, foodstuffs or materials. So, you know, I don't know if I have a, a drink that has all these uh, great vitamins and minerals, probiotics and stuff in it. But if it's in a plastic bottle that has uh, plasticizers, colors, all kinds of additives, and there's thousands of different chemicals in the bottle that it comes in. Uh, does that overwhelm my wish to create, let's say, a good product that's healthy for people, but yet it's in contact with this plastic bottle that does, and you know, leach and form microplastics over time? Like, is the packaging coupled with the product? Um, what about the delivery mechanism, the transport, 
the energy inputs, all that stuff. Is that considered? Right. That's that's a great question. You know, the tools that would be um, great for such a uh, discussion or a question to ask would be something like life cycle assessment. So in the case of life cycle assessment, it's a tool that factors in a lot of different um, impacts. So whether it's impact through uh, climate change or ecotoxicity or toxicity aspects, um, you really need a tool that factors in all these different impacts across different criteria to really understand the full life cycle impact of that product. And so I can't, you know, speak specifically unless we have a real case and we ran it through the type of like LCA to really see, you know, the full um, impact. But that type of system level thinking is really important. It's going to be continually important as we move forward. I know in Europe that they're, they want to pursue things, uh, pursue innovation in a way that's like more safe by design or safe and sustainable by design. So try to apply some green chemistry principles early on innovation. And then also couple it with some investigations into, you know, what is the greenhouse gas impact of the new product that we're making? So yeah, life cycle assessment is going to be a great tool moving forward. I mean, I know we're supposed to be talking mainly about food and ag, but, you know, if you look at electric vehicles, I believe, you know, there's a whole conversation there about what is the full life cycle impact of what, you know, with new electric vehicles, um, what are the impacts of using lithium batteries and other rare earth metals um, when you, yeah. So um, I'm not an expert at all in electric vehicles, but I just know that the use of life cycle assessment has been really important in framing that conversation or is it worth it, you know, in the end, is it worth developing a new product that would have another set of environmental impacts compared to the um, conventional product? Yeah, I read a book years ago called Cradle to Cradle. And it was about deliberately making products to be taken back by a manufacturer and possibly disassembled and the raw materials reused. Like they gave an example of a furniture company. I don't know the name, but you know, they supposedly designed the furniture to be to take it back and again disassemble it and reuse it. Does any of that come into play with the types of products that you look at? Is anyone looking at that type of situation? Yes, for sure. I don't work in LCA, but I know other groups who do and it, I mean that's the ideal situation is that you have a circular economy that you that we stop really innovating products that are more linear materials from the earth and then we you know landfill it like we want to disrupt that and we want to create more cir- circular economies in fact there's a lot of work going on in europe again the time to grow the circular economy yeah so that that's on the horizon but i think i mean we still have a lot of challenges to be able to effectively do that you know how can we really extract these different metals from these materials that are embedded with so many other materials, you know, so we're really still working on how can we extract metals or materials or even things like nutrients like to be able to reuse it again. But it is the way that particularly because we just have one planet and we have a finite, you know, set of resources and so we really need to be more mindful about reusing and yeah, having a more circular economy overall. Is there a product that maybe you've been involved with or maybe not, but you think it's a really good example of all the stuff that you're talking about? You know, it was well considered. It, it did involve various people and uh, interests that, uh, you know, contributed to its design and its use. I mean, any good examples out there or are things so new and so underdeveloped that there aren't yet good examples? That's a great question. Other folks have asked me that as well. Like, what's a great example of a sustainable product or a product that has been responsibly innovated. And that some of the 
responses that I have received from others have, I would say it's almost like the beauty is in the eye of the beholder. What is deemed is sustainable, maybe, maybe different depending on certain viewpoints. And there's so many different factors to consider. And in, in some ways, I, I don't know if there would be an ultimate product that is, you know, poster child of sustainability. We definitely see a lot of examples on the other end of the spectrum where things have just really not gone as expected, whether they're in the environment, impacts to human health, whether societal um, voices and perspectives were, you know, not included very robustly. So we see a lot of, you know, what not to do. So unfortunately, I can't really give you a great example of a sustainable product right now, um, but I'll be happy to continue to think about that and get back with you if I uh, identify one. Okay. Well, very good. Uh, Kara, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work and keep tabs? Where can they go? Yeah. So I have uh, some information online. If you just Google me, you can find my profile at NC State. I also have my group uh, website up. It's called, um, my research group is called the Interview NC State. And I'm involved in a number of different projects that also have their own website being the Genetic Engineering and Society Center here at NC State, also part of a Science and Technologies for Phosphorus Center or STEP Center at NC State. So I feel like if uh, anybody's interested in finding out more, just, you know, you probably just can Google me. You'll find some sites and different information. You're also welcome to check out some of my publications that are on Google Scholar or elsewhere. So yeah, I'm happy to answer any additional questions if someone wants to contact me via email. Excellent. Well, Karen, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Magnesium is integral for 600 plus biochemical processes in the human body. And yet most people are deficient. Common signs of magnesium deficiency include fatigue, muscle weakness, stunted growth, poor immune function, poor concentration and memory, hormonal imbalances, bone and teeth problems. Most people think grabbing a bottle of whatever cheap stuff on the shelf or at the top of Amazon will solve this. The common misconception is that consuming more magnesium will automatically improve health and well-being. The truth is there are various forms of magnesium, each of which is essential for a variety of physiological processes. Most people are deficient in all forms of magnesium, while even those considered healthy typically only ingest one or two kinds. Consuming all seven of magnesium's primary forms is the key to accessing all of its health benefits. That's why we pack seven forms of 450 milligrams of elemental magnesium into each serving of Wild Mag Complex. One dose a day is all you need. Learn more and grab a bottle today at wildfoods.co. Use code GENIUS for 10% off your order. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.